Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, it is time once again to check in on COVID progress, not progress of the disease per se, but progress towards a vaccine. Let's bring in Sam Fazali, Director of Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Sam, you keep an eye on everything that's out there. You've noticed, though, that some companies do actually have an edge over others. Tell us what companies we should be most closely watching these days. Yeah, hi, Bonnie. Um, so... You know, the, a lot of this um, analysis and, and, and conclusion is based on early data, and early scientific data has a nasty habit of changing when you get into bigger trials and test your, your product into in multi-center trials, etc. So with that caveat, if we look at the, the, um, on the effectiveness side, I, th- I think Pfizer and BioNTech seem to have the edge at the minute with regards to both generating antibodies and also this other arm of the immune system that I keep talking about, that cellular immunity. That seems to be the case at the moment. So, um, you know, they, they beat Moderna on the cellular arm and on the, um, uh, on the antibodies. Uh, AstraZeneca didn't quite match up, although it's not bad. It's just not as good as. So that's where we stand today. Although there's a whole bunch of other companies that have to still put out data with different technologies, and the ones that I'm particularly looking forward to seeing some one, some of the older technologies, uh, the, the variety of vaccines that we have today don't use either of the technologies that Moderna, Pfizer, and AstraZeneca are using. And also, there's one other version of these RNA vaccines that Pfizer's got that um, is being tested by Imperial College and a company in the U.S. called Arcturus, amongst others. I'm looking forward to seeing some human data for those. Hey, Sam, you've followed this pharma business and vaccine business for decades. Help us understand that when and if we get vaccines, plural, I'm assuming various entities will come out with various vaccines. Talk to us about how you actually get a vaccine discovery and then into mass production for, I'm guessing, billions of doses and then the distribution of that. How does that all work? Yeah, yeah, interesting, Paul. Actually, vaccines were really not sexy at all until quite a few years ago. Right. Uh, when we ended up getting some of the newer vaccines like Gardasil from uh, like Shingrix from, uh, from Glaxo. And, and exactly to your point, both of those products have manufacturing bottlenecks in them in that they can't make enough of this stuff to sell. So both Glaxo and Merck either under, underestimated the demand or um, it's just very difficult to manufacture these things. So to that point, there is a lot of steps required. And I think the one person who regularly brought this up was the CEO of Sanofi, saying it's not just about discovering a vaccine. You've got to be able to first show that it's safe because you're giving it to a large population of otherwise healthy people who don't have a disease, and then you've got to get the stuff manufactured, put into a vial, sent somewhere in a cold chain often, so you need to keep it cold or maybe sometimes even frozen. That's, a, that's an enormous um, challenge, but I think our governments can ra- rise up to it if, if people are um, 
don't politicize the thing again. Uh, but but it is it is it's definitely a, a hard and tough mountain to climb. And one question is, you know, how much do you give to other countries, if anything? Even though it would probably be in your interest to give this to the whole world, right, Sam? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, let me tell you something. We've just added up all the doses that people have said they'll be making. And this is only about 12, 15 companies. So the other 100-odd companies or more, I don't have numbers for. Um, And we're at 10 billion doses in 2021. And even if you have to take two of those per person, that's 5 billion people. Now, it doesn't matter how many doses uh, you give to America. We don't need more than six, 700 million doses in the U.S., right? So there's enough volume being pledged and being worked on that if all these vaccines work, that's the point, right? Because they're all different vaccines. Then you have more than enough to vaccinate a large majority of people to get to that 70% herd immunity, if they all work. So, Sam, I guess the next, what are some of the next mileposts that you're looking at real real quickly here that you think are going to kind of come across the tape? Yeah, so I'm looking forward to, as I said earlier, to data from some of these other technologies, uh, actual published data. Folks have said that their vaccines worked. Uh, Some Chinese companies have said their vaccines worked. But published data that we started to see yesterday with all the hoo-ha that we had yesterday. Um, So I'd I'd like to see some of the older vaccines show some, you know, just to see how they're doing. And then uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing this uh, new, even newer version of RNA vaccines from Imperial College and Arcturus and Translate Bio. There's a whole host of companies who've got these. Glaxo's got some. But I think we're, we're expecting some news from Imperial and Arcturus in the next few weeks, months. That's what I'm looking forward to. Hey, Sam, thanks so much once again for joining us, giving us your thoughts on this whole uh, race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Sam Fazelli, he's Director of Research for Bloomberg Intelligence for all of Europe, but uh, more importantly, his day job is he's one of those top pharma healthcare analysts uh, based uh, in London. Let's move over now to Asia and talk China. China's market, the new Jack Ma Ant IPO, has bypassed the New York Stock Exchange and has decided to list on the Hong Kong and Shanghai exchanges. And of course, after that, the Hong Kong exchanges and clearing Stock surged as much as 9.5%. Let's bring in someone who knows a lot about this now. Brendan Ahern is CIO of Crane Shares. Brendan, why did Jack Ma decide to IPO almost everywhere but New York? (laughs) Well, I I think we've seen U.S.-listed Chinese companies reissue in Hong Kong, uh, as well as on the new Shanghai Starboard, in order to get a higher valuation that... U.S.-China political rhetoric has depressed the U.S.-listed companies over the last, say, two years. So they're going to where they're going to be properly valued by investors. So, Brendan, give us a sense of this Ant Financial. A lot of people here, I think, in the States don't have a real good understanding of what Ant is. Give us your, your, your overview of the company. So Ant, Ant Financial makes PayPal look like a rounding error. Um, <laughs> That's great, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's mobile payments dominate uh, the e-commerce space in China today. 
uh, you know, actually finding places that will accept cash or in some cases even credit cards is very difficult when you when you visit China because it's all all done mobily. And so Ant's really been at the forefront. Um, you know, Alibaba uh, now owns about a third of the company and it's hooked in with their e-commerce outlets, Tmall and Taobao. But it's, it's, it's really it's really gone viral. It's ubiquitous in China today. $200 billion valuation on that company, so pretty phenomenal. Brendan, what, what do we need to know about China right now and its uh, aspect towards free markets? It seemed for a long time that it was trying to embrace free markets more and more. And at a certain point, you know, I think investors turned their back a little bit on China, particularly as it was camping down on, on Hong Kong and so on. Are investors back now? I mean, you can't ignore $200 billion valuation you know, IPOs. No, no. I mean, certainly we've had a, uh, you know, the bulls are on parade in Hong Kong right now. You had Alibaba relist in November of last year, JD and NetEase more recently. Um, but you're going to have a number of these companies relist and they're getting higher valuations. One of the rumors we heard, I'll, I'll share just, uh, uh, just, you know, Bloomberg Radio has been so great to us over the years, but, but there's actually chatter, there's rumors that Didi is going to go public in Hong Kong. Hmm. Uh, Didi is the uh, Uber slayer. Uh, you know, Didi put Uber out of business in China, um, and there was there's there's talk that they're going to come as well. So you know, you've got two of the biggest tech unicorns globally potentially going public in Hong Kong um, this year. So. Interesting, Brendan. Give us a sense of just overall how the markets are over there. I mean, you know, China was obviously the beginning of the pandemic and really bore the brunt of it uh, late last year, but very early this year. Yet they've uh, had some much better numbers over the last several months. How's the Chinese, I guess, just market in general looking over there? So, so China's first in, first out. It's it's FIFO. So, so they their worst economic numbers, corporate earnings took place in in Q1, and we're seeing definitively a, a V-shaped rebound. Uh, you know, some of this is the strength of the quarantine in China, and this is it's not it's not a China thing. It's it's an Asia thing. Unfortunately, we've seen a number of pandemics in the last 20 years. If it's SARS or H1N1. Um, and, and when they say don't leave your apartment, it's taken very, very seriously. And I, I would point to Vietnam, a uh, population of 100 million, under 400 cases, zero deaths. Taiwan, 25 million people, under mm. 500 cases. So it's not a China thing, it's an Asia thing. And that's allowed them to go back to work. What's next for crane shares, Brendan? What, what are you looking at these days? Well, I, I think we're seeing, you know, you know, we're in a growth-geared market, and, and that's globally. It, it's in emerging markets. It's in China. So, so I think, one, we're out trying to tell investors that buying broad EM, which has a heavy, heavy tilt to value sectors, uh, you have to piece out the, these, these growth parts of EM and China. Um, I think, you know, further afield, we are looking at this new starboard, uh, this new board on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. Uh, it's an area where uh, we, we hope to come to market in, in the coming weeks with a, a U.S.-listed ETF. Interesting. So, interesting, Brendan. So, we've seen fiscal stimulus uh, out of the U.S. Uh, today, we had a big, big package announced out of the European Union. In China, what's the fiscal stimulus environment there for the Chinese government? So they've taken a very incremental process. The, the, the raw numbers show that China, yes, 
they're stimulating, but it's so much more supporting. It, they, they've not pulled the Band-Aid and gone kind of 2009 debt-driven. So, so they're doing very targeted measures, trying to get credit to private companies, smaller, uh, uh, medium, and small companies. So, so they've been lowering uh, some, some of the lending rates. Uh, but more targeted, more targeted exposure. I, I, I think they realize that they're not going to be immune to the economic consequence of global quarantine, so they're keeping a lot of dry powder. Where do you think that dry powder will end up? So I, I think ultimately, if we, if you know, ho- hopefully we, we get a, a, a Q3 rebound here in the United States. I, I think that you know, as the number, largest economy globally, it's very critical. Uh, and I think I think what China is doing is you know they've not cut interest rates, um, and I think I think if if we have a negative outcome in terms of uh, quarantine, social distancing measures, you know China will have to push further stimulus to offset um, external weakness. Hey Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts on all things Asia, including. China, Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer for Crane Shares based in New York City. Uh, and Vani, it's interesting to see kind of how, you know, the, the, a lot of those Asian uh, um, uh, countries have done very well with containing the virus. Well, we've been talking about the cannabis market really for several years now as it continues to grow, not just in Canada, but now uh, in the United States as well as a handful of states or more than a handful of states have legalized recreational marijuana. Matt Hawkins, managing partner for Entourage Effect Capital. They're based in Dallas, Texas, private equity firm focusing on a number of sectors, including uh, the uh, cannabis uh, business as well. So let's get a sense of kind of where things are pre and post-pandemic in the cannabis business. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a snapshot, if you would, of the cannabis marketplace kind of pre- and post-pandemic here. Sure, happy to do so. Thanks for having me. Uh, before the pandemic started, there was a, a downturn in the, in the cannabis markets uh, in general. It was driven by the... Uh, the public companies and multi-state operators in the United States that are listed on the Canadian exchanges that were unable to meet their projections due to uh, a lot of factors, the first and foremost being their inability to convert uh, a large number of the illicit market into um, the legalized market. So the, the projections that they had come out with obviously weren't met. That trickles down, you know, following quarter to and then it also trickles down to the, the, the private companies as well so there was a distressed a moment in time for, for you know distressed buying and there was also a cash crunch in the industry what's happened post pandemic is that in all the legalized states um, with the exception of Massachusetts for recreational the company the cannabis industry was deemed essential so all of our dispensaries and and uh, and and you know and, and production facilities were all all remained open and in fact sales skyrocketed and have continued to do so and so the pandemic in a you know in a in an awful irony has has helped the the, the industry and so excuse me you still have valuations that are low but you have companies that are in better shape are and we so seeing for folks. Sure, go ahead. Well, just on that, are we seeing deals yet, Matt? And uh, if so, you know, are they small deals, medium-sized deals? Is this when private equity goes nuts? 
Well, again, a good question. The, the private equity world in cannabis is small, comparatively speaking. We, we have no institutional capital in the industry. I mean, all of our investors, we've been placing money in the industry since 2014. We've made almost 70 investments, but all of our investors come from high net worth individuals or family offices. We don't have any true uh, institutional quality investors because of the federal illegality. And so until that changes, it's going to be small, comparatively speaking. But what's happening now, to answer your question about deals getting done, is that the capital markets and cannabis industry have opened up a bit since the pandemic um, started. Uh, obviously, at the beginning, even though we were uh, deemed essential, there was no deals getting done because money was on the sidelines. Things are starting to pick up a bit. We anticipate by the fall, we're going to see a lot of activity, both at the private and the, 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 the public sectors. Um, scale building deals to where, <clears throat> excuse me, in advance of some type of legalization in the next several years, um, those are the companies that are going to uh, be in position with scale to attract big institutional capital, and that's when the wave will really hit. So, Matt, on the on the credit side, give us a sense of how these companies are financing kind of their day to day operations. Are banks lending to this sector? Absolutely not. It is yeah. a we have the 60-some-odd investments we have. They all have banking relationships where business services and checking accounts. I mean, that, that's been a bit of a misnomer in the industry in that there are following federal guidelines to provide services, but they're not able to, to lend money. And so that, that's what would have been a disaster to the industry if there was a prolonged shutdown because we don't have lines of credit. We don't have huge uh, balance sheets to, to, to weather rainy days. And so that, that until, and until it becomes mm-hmm. federally legal or federally quasi-legal through the States Act or the Safe Banking Act, um, it's going to remain that way. Matt, who are your competitors in private equity? You know, there's a sense out there that at some point there'll be two or three private equity firms that will own up all of the, you know, the, the cannabis facilities, particularly in states like California and so on. Who should we be looking at? <laughs> well, we, we we like to say in the in the PE world in cannabis that we don't have any competitors because the industries there's such a dearth of capital that, that we all work together. I mean, we when we look at deals, we look to see who's in the who's in the capital stack, and we look for people that we've invested with in the past. There's there's very few organized capital groups like us that are in the industry. Um, of course, that will change. I think what you'll see happening, you know, as we get towards federal legalization, that the opposite will happen. A lot more groups will come in, and they'll be backed by, you know, Wall Street names, and you'll see, uh, you know, a large chunk of the industry being, you know, being owned and, and operated and invested in by the large PE shops. What kind of a size of an industry is it right now in the U.S.? Um, our, it, it's hard to say because what's happened is, you know, we think it could be as big as a $50 billion industry mm-hmm. in the, in the United States, you know, by 2020 or 21, 22, but a big portion of that includes the illicit market. And because yeah. the, the illicit market is what it is, we really don't know how big that is, but what we always say is that this is a conversion of a market, not a creation of one. Like for example, California well, um, actually, Matt, we'll have to make you save that example for the next time, but you're leaving us on a sweet note there. Let's put it that way. That is Matt Hawkins, managing partner of Entourage Effect Capital. A great name for um, 
for yep. a cannabis capital business coming to us from Dallas. Time now to get back to some market conversation. David Harden is CIO of Summit Global Investments with $1.2 billion in assets under management. He manages the U.S. large cap equity fund. And wouldn't you know what? The U.S. large caps are rallying today. Not unusual, funnily enough. So let's bring in David to figure out why. David, why are we continuing to see just the market move higher and higher and higher in spite of so many challenges? Well, there, thank you, Vonnie. Glad to be on your show, Paul, and uh, excited to be here again and, and appreciate that. The market is moving. And let's face it, a lot of that has to do with the Fed. The Fed put, the Fed zero interest rates, the system open market accounts. Um, it's working and it is moving the markets forward for sure. And that's a lot of what's going on right now. There's a little bit of euphoria as well. We have uh, people uh, using Robinhood you know, and, and buying stocks. So there's a lot of speculation out there. But in general, I'd attribute it to the Fed. So, David, and when we think about the Fed and the Fed put, it seems like a lot of the performance when you look at the S&P 500 is limited to a, a handful of names, those big tech names. Um, how do you view that? Is that a concern for you? Is it time to rotate out of some of those winners into maybe some other sectors that perhaps have been lagging? Well, there's a little bit of difference between, and, and one of the things we look at a lot at Summit Global is risk and trying to help manage the risk that is in the stock market without having negative surprises. And when you look at these big names, that's what's really different between the, if you want to call it a bubble territory that we may be in right now compared to, say, 2000, is that in 2000, you had a lot of low quality, um, call it junk, risky names. Now you have a very high quality, Microsoft up 34%, Amazon up 73%, Apple up 34%. These are very good, rated the most innovative companies that we have in America today. So the difference, I think, that you can hold on to this and continue to hold these names is they're so high quality and such good companies that they deserve to be up. No one in Microsoft is laid off, so to speak, right? They can continue to work. 40-some-odd million people out of work right now, but they're not off the Internet. They're not off their technology. They're all still using their phones. So very important that these companies can continue to execute. I know another stock you like is Walmart. Is that also a pandemic play? Um, In some respects, it is, but we held it long before this came about. But in recessions and periods of where people are unemployed like we are in right now, Walmart tends to gain market share. If you look at the past, they're up about 12% year to date. But this is with really low risk with a beta of 0.53. Walmart provides you good return with very, very um, low downside risk. And that's what we like. All right. So, David, how about we just got through the earnings from the big banks last week. Uh, Some really, really strong uh, trading results coming out of some of those banks. How do you look at the banks right here? Well, and, that, and that's just it. If, if they can make money through their trading, through other areas besides the yield curve, then that's worth looking at and that's worth investing in. If they're making money from small business and the yield curve, that's something that I would want to avoid. So economics and fundamentals disconnected. At what point do they reconnect and do you very, very quickly shovel the, uh, sh- shuffle the playing cards in your deck at that point? Well, you have to, right? Because right now the reality is we're not not trading on fundamentals as a whole. It is focused in a very narrow part of the market. 
um, and it is focused on the Fed. And if the virus and the vaccine and everything else comes to play where we can treat this and it, we can go back to, quote unquote, our normal lives, well, then a lot of that Fed and a lot of the stimulus goes away and we're supposed to be able to go back to work. So it becomes somewhat of a good news becomes bad news and you do have to trade that. So our expectation is that the market continues, but don't be surprised if we have a big risk-off scenario, a severe risk-off episode, and I think it's very likely over the next year. So that kind of goes to the decoupling issue here. We've got a, a rising stock market, rising just kind of risk assets in general, yet the economy remains extraordinarily weak. We're going to you know, uh, get a brutal Q2 GDP number shortly, jobless claims uh, coming out later this week. Are you concerned that at some point that that decoupling just can't last? Absolutely. It has to shift back to normal. The focus has to go back on these reopenings and how they're not working or being delayed on the economic disappointments, which you just mentioned. And one that you haven't mentioned is the election. So I think most people are waiting, hoping that, that maybe somehow the election can be in the favor of the market. But everything indicates that it might not be. What's the question you get most from your clients there in Salt Lake City and, and surrounding areas? I think most people ask, what should I do? What should I do? Should I put my cash to work? Should I sell out of the market? And I think they're looking for advice. And in general, you know, as an institutional investment manager, we have those answers, but they're very specific to each person's situation. So it's really important. I think that, you know, you talk about essential workers and how important they are. Advisors and investment professionals are absolutely essential to help people understand what they should do. But that advisor and investment professional has to understand the underlying um, risk and characteristics and profile of that client. David, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your commentary. David Hardin, Chief Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer, Summit Global Investments. They have $1.2 billion under management based in Salt Lake City, Utah. We appreciate his thoughts. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.